Hello there, guests, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Decade. Today's guest, Mark Edwards, is a person that sits on so much knowledge, and he's a person that I've been learning a lot from lately. Mark has 20 years of experience as a psychologist, and he's now an assistant professor teaching sustainability at Jönköping University. In our conversation with him, we, we were talking about connections between psychology and sustainability. We talk about media's important role in our evolution and how they lack responsibility to tell the real truth. We talk about the devastating effects of measuring economic progress through gross domestic product, GDP, BNP in Swedish which is the metric used to measure a country's financial transactions of final goods and services within a country's economy. So without revealing any more spoilers, I give you the next episode of The Decade. to our podcast, The Decade. How are you doing today? I'm great, Jonathan. Great to see you and Melka and happy to be here and discuss this wonderful field of studies and field of life, really. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, we're both very excited to have you on. Now, why don't we start in the beginning and introducing you a bit. Who are you and a bit of your background and how did you get into this field of sustainability? Yes, well, uh, I'm an assistant professor at the uh, Jönköping International Business School. I've been there for three years, uh, teaching and researching in the areas of sustainability and business ethics and some research uh, sort of methods areas. Um, and I've, I've come to Sweden for a couple of reasons. One is to teach and develop this new sustainable enterprise, um, sustainable enterprise development program that the university's brought me in to develop and establish. And also, I'm a, I'm a sort of a refugee for love. Uh, I was on a sabbatical at the Stockholm Resilience Centre some years back and met my current partner there who works there. So uh, here for a, a couple of reasons, but originally from Australia, I, I did my PhD in uh, 2008. So actually I picked up my PhD on my 50th birthday. Everything was tied up and finished on my 50th birthday. So that was very, very nice. And yeah, I, I in my PhD, I looked at um, sustainability and transformation in organizations. So I wanted to focus on a topic which I felt was really something that I could contribute to in a big way, an important topic. And I see sustainability as the framing topic of the future. Everything is connected through sustainability. And I think it's a it's an important topic that I want to contribute to as an academic. I'd been a, um, a psychologist for 20 years before that, working mainly in the area of, of um, disability, but also in grief counselling, bereavement counselling sort of field. Um, and, and I'd worked in many jobs. I'd seen a lot in Australia. I travelled through a lot of Australia, had a lot of experiences with a lot of different um, people and I really got interested in um, the way that people look at topics with through different eyes, and that led me into this whole area of sustainability because different perspectives are so important. And um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about me. All right, how did you get into? the field of sustainability from the beginning because you you've been interested in 
doing work and studies within in it for a long time, like before it was mainstream, if you would like to use those words. Yeah, look, I've been interested in sustainability since, well, actively involved since the early 80s. I grew up as a, as a young boy in Queensland, in country Queensland, in beautiful bush. You know, I played in creeks and rivers and forests as a young boy, 10, 12 years old, sort of Huckleberry Finn type existence, you know. So I had this um, appreciation for nature and for really for natural systems, for ecologies and for um, systems of biological life that, that I played in as a young boy. And so I, I had this innate appreciation and love of natural systems of nature. And so when I started reading and thinking about the impact of humanity and you know human activities and, and businesses on nature, I started reading topics like uh, you know Silent Spring by Rachel Carson and um, books like The Turning Point from Fitchoff Capra, from, you know, a whole bunch of different things, science fiction stuff, you know, like Lord of the Rings, for example, has got this, this, this quality of, you know, humanity sort of destroying nature or of saving it, you know. So and I read that back in the late 60s or early 70s, you know, really way back. So, so it was part of me as a child. And then I started becoming a bit more active when I saw that some big decisions were being made politically. I can remember in Western Australia, there was media being set up to look at the type of energy that um, the state should run by. And they were, they were debating whether to set up another coal-fired power station or whether it should be gas-fired or whatever. This was in the early 80s. And I did some research on that and started putting in submissions to the the various uh, committees, started getting involved with uh, green groups. And I think one of the first environmental groups in the world, political groups, was established in Western Australia. At that time, it also went under the banner of a sort of anti-nuclear uh, weapons. But it combined some of these sort of environmental topics. and the person there who actually became a senator was a bit of a mentor for me. So I was probably around 22, 20, 24, 20, 25, around that sort of age. Um, and I, I started becoming a bit active and became a member of the Greens Party in WA very, very early on. Senator Joe Valentine had set up this this party. It was was a wonderful um, and, and dynamic person, and she connected a lot of things for me. Uh, she was a Quaker, so she she had this non-violence thing. So, and she connected it politically, spiritually, uh, connected it with a planetary worldview. So, and another very interesting source of of uh, experience for me was to experience the world of disability and to to be working with families with disability or people, family members with disability. And that, that really, <clears throat> I think, stimulated my interest in the way that we look at social sustainability issues, right? So how do we not only connect up with nature, but how do we connect up with uh, inclusive understandings of what it means to be a society? So <clears throat> you can see environmental sustainability, social sustainability, and, and working as a psychologist, you know, you, you always run up against systems. So you start off working with individuals and with people, you know, in a therapeutic situation or trying to develop some sort of accommodation for people to fit people into systems or to shift the system in some way. But you, you rub up against systems when you work in so many fields, you know, not just in psychology, but uh, in, in lots of professional fields. You, you start 
the longer you work in a field, the more you uh, become involved with systems. So combining these sorts of things just was very natural for me to look at doing a PhD in the area of organisations and with sustainability and transformation. So that's that's how it came about, yeah. There's a lot of parallels between psychology and sustainability, I can imagine. Yeah, there's a lot of connections. Transformation is a huge connection. Change, growth, um, different forms of growth, um, perspectives and worldviews and mindsets. You know, I've always thought that the the big issue in, say, a topic, an, an environmental topic like climate change is, is once the facts are established, the, the, the key issue then becomes uh, a psychological or sociological issue. And no amount of, of further facts will make a difference if mindsets stay the same. So, yeah, the the psychology of sustainability is central. And this is where people, you know, and, and, and environments are, are so connected. And this is why we talk about social ecological systems as opposed to trying to, you know, divide up humanity as against nature or to differentiate between, you know, how people treat nature or think of nature. We, we are absolutely entangled so um, yeah psychology is a crucial topic mm. and with that background in mind and now you're currently at jibs as a assistant professor what would you say is your current mission with what you're doing right now well you know the the whole reason i'm an academic is to uh, contribute to this area of sustainability and to contribute to the education of students, to contribute in the area of research, to contribute to the institution and in service to the institution. So I, you know, it can be, you, you have to hold it lightly because it can get a bit, uh, um, you know, it can get a bit tiresome to be a hero or to have, to have a, you know, just some purpose or some mission that you're on. So I do hold these things lightly. I, I recognise the, the crucial importance, but I also recognise the, the fact that these things are in many ways out of my control and they're in a sense out of the control of humans, you know. Uh, we can see, like with cor the corona situation, Mother Nature is really in control, right? So uh, the coronavirus comes up and, and Mother Nature tells us all to take a break at home for a few months, right? So we can, you know, it, it's a complex issue. In some ways we are in control. We do need to manage our way out of the, the current problems that we're in, that we've caused as a as a collective society or, or set of societies on this planet. Uh, we are in the, the era of the Anthropocene, you know, the, the era, era in which humanity is the dominant force of change on the planet at the moment. So in that sense, you know, we, in, in a sense, we are in a position of needing to control, of needing to manage our way out of things. And so, I have a sense in, in contributing to the work of the um, um, business administration department at JU and to JU itself as, a, as an organisation to contribute to our leadership in the community on this absolutely fundamental topic of sustainability, you know. So... Um, I try to contribute in all of those domains, in education and research mm -hmm. and service to the institution. And I must say that um, at JU, at Yonchurping University, the, it's a very appreciative and open community there. The leadership is 
becoming tuned into these topics more and more. I did. I must say I was at a very good university in Australia, the University of Western Australia, and that understanding and appreciation of of the whole issue of sustainability was not um, part of the institutional ethos. And I guess you know the the corporate influence can have a lot of sway on whether um, institutions, particularly universities, take a leading role in these sorts of issues, which they definitely should. You know, I've just written a report for the for the dean here on sustainability in at the university level and how how the university as a as an institution deals with this topic. You know? And it's very clear that universities have been lagging. They they really should be at the forefront of active, dynamic contribution and and guidance on this topic. You know, it's it's out of research institutions that we know that humanity is having these impacts. And so yeah. we should not just be, you know, collecting endless facts about the the how humanity is impacting on on natural systems and on social ecological systems but we should as as leading institutions in a community we should be addressing these issues we should be taking a leadership role in the community and actively you know and i would say activist role as well you know because um because the community has been led astray in a number of ways, you know, there there have been a lot of uh, countervailing forces and, and, and vested interests that do not want to change, that feel that their, their interests are threatened if we really acknowledge the science. And they've set out to confuse and to, to find uh, alternative sources of, you know, alternative facts to... Um, to lead us into states of inaction. And there's no question that that's, that's happened, you know. Naomi Reskes, great historian of, of these sorts of issues, published a book seven or eight years ago called The um, Merchants of, of Doubt, or The Doubt Merchants. And it's a history of how uh, the climate science was, was uh, undermined, deliberately undermined, you know. And um, unfortunately, some even actors within universities have been involved in this. And um, and you know, I mean, we could we could talk about this further if you wanted to. But there's there's a whole history here to the to the involvement of universities and, and research centres, and uh, and the importance of their role and of their leadership role in the community to really take on. This, this important sort of leadership profile within the community, and often it hasn't occurred. We've we've hid behind the fact, the the sort of idea that we are creators of facts. We just need to establish the facts, and that's enough. And um, particularly in the social sciences, <clears throat> I think that's definitely not enough. I got to think about, like you told us a couple of weeks ago, that. You're not a leader, you're a seeder. And I really like that concept and I see a lot of connections to the sustainability mindset. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about it and what is some of the most important seeds that you're handing out or planting in your teaching? Yes, well, I guess it's, um, I might need to explain that having just said that we need to take a leadership role. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess that is much more about me at a personal level. I feel my skills and competencies, you know, we, we, we do need to take a leadership role at every level. Um, but my sort of focus, my, my, my background and, and skills, I feel, really are in, in terms of developing ideas and understandings and ways of of looking at things which can con 
contribute to um, a more sustainable society that we need to develop, you know, that we need to shift towards. So I feel that just with personally with my background and my my sort of skills that I have, that this is what I want to contribute to. So um, there are many people taking uh, a leadership role in in different ways in in sustainability, and more can be done. Um, but there has been a big deficit in the area of ideas. You know, what do we? How do we become sustainable? What is a sustainable organization or a sustainable community or sustainable society? What does that actually mean? And so um, I can I feel, you know, we only have one life to lead, and this is where I feel I can contribute the most is, is in exposing different perspectives and to to my students and, and doing research about them, and also integrating those different perspectives in a way which actually transforms our understanding of what sustainability can be all about. You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have you two in my classes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm humbled. <laughs> you know that I love pouring over you all these different perspectives, right? And... and um, Hopefully there is, you also get a sense of how we can connect them and how we can integrate them. For sure. And that's a large part of what uh, this podcast emerged from, from realizing connections between yeah. different topics and viewpoints and uh, just having a sense of curiosity and realizing how these broader systems are interlinked in different ways. And I think you mentioned a key aspects which I want to get into, which is what is sustainability? What is a sustainable sustainable organization? Because the terminology used in these kinds of settings can make a large difference. And especially when we're talking about such broad uh, spectrums of thing, like for some people, sustainability means one thing. And for others, it's a completely and vastly much deeper thing. So we have like kind of chosen to choose the word sustainability within this podcast because that's uh, where our education comes from and all of that. But at the same time, a lot of other organizations are switching from going and speaking about sustainability to speaking about resilience and yeah. uh, these other words that they think describe the concepts better. and. My take on it is that just, um, I guess, in a sense, trying to create as good of a future as possible. And that creates a lot of room for interpretation. I would just be curious to hear your two cents on the terminology yeah. within sustainability. Yeah. Yes, no, it's, a, it's a much contested term. Um, it's been around for a while. And I... I'd be happy to exchange it for, you know, flourishing, flourishing together or resilience and so on. I mean, there are there are technical differences between some of these terms, but I think I I I'm happy to go under the banner of of sustainability as a as a sort of um, that that connects a whole bunch of different disciplines, you know. Corporate sustainability, corporate social sustainability, corporate uh, citizenship, and and resilience, and and um, you know ethics, and, and a whole range of different things are very closely connected. Sustainability itself, as you know, was is uh, technically defined um, in terms of sustainable development as you know, meeting our needs as, as a current society without compromising the capacities of, of future generations to meet their needs. But that leaves open what what are these needs and what what does it mean that you don't compromise and how how 
how many generations are we looking at here? You know, is it just the next one or is it the one after that? I, I take a very simple view. In fact, I take a, a, a definition of sustainability that doesn't have any words, but which just connects us to the fact that we are um, a society of basically of animals who live on a planet in very, very empty space, you know, a little rock in the sky, the little blue pebble spinning around the sun. So my definition of sustainability, as you know, when I introduce this topic, is to show a picture of the Earthrise photograph taken from one of the Apollo missions, right? So this is the Earth as it rises above the horizon of the moon. And this is a very important um, image for me. And this is how I communicate my understanding of what sustainability is. Sustainability is the future of that little blue rock in the sky. Sustainability is about all the life on the planet, human, animal, vegetable, plant, in all the different um, biospheres and atmosphere, hydrosphere, the geosphere, the 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 um, you know the oceans, the lands, and it's how do we um, enable and contribute to the sustaining diversity of that little pebble in the sky? And when you look at that image. You know what sustainability is. You don't have to use too many words. You, know? you feel it in your heart and in your guts, and that connects us all. And I think um, if if you asked me for what my personal definition is, I would show you that photograph and say, what does that mean to you? What do you feel when you see that and think of all the plants and animals and creatures who had ever lived on the surface of that little rock. That's what sustainability is. That's, it's, it's also, it's much more of a verb, you know. It's, it's more like sustaining, you know, rather than sustainability. It's about, it's about the act, the process of sustaining that system. And... Um, uh, it's it's deeply spiritual. It's deeply practical. It's deeply embedded in biology and in rocks and soil and atmosphere. Uh, it's deeply embedded in culture and in our meaning making and in the systems and ideas of all the different cultures. Um, and I, I raise here particularly the importance of indigenous culture. You know, I think sustainability for me is is about opening up to the deepest of what we are about, you know, as as individuals, but also as communities and as societies and cultures. And so I like to think <laughs> of sustainability in this very, very sort of connecting and deep manner which brings in everything you know in, in some fashion that has its mm-hmm. dangers of course in getting lost in the you know what sustainability is not um, yeah. that's that's part of the deal that's for me i find that uh, interesting as well to say what it isn't well what is it not then well <clears throat> you know that's that's uh, that's something which I haven't really <laughs> connected <laughs> with at the moment. It's, I guess, I guess you could say sustainability is not what we're currently doing. Great, that is a good segue to my next question, uh, because what we're talking about here is a lot of different perspectives, and you're talking about different hydrosphere and the geosphere and the atmosphere. And what me and Jonathan have come to realize 
by studying sustainability and especially within the school of jibs has been that okay there's no easy answer to this there's too many interconnections so you have to broaden your understanding of these different systems and that's how you get a more wholesome view or a holistic view of uh, sustainability and but a large part of this is understanding how we interact with nature um, and how we are a part of nature i think and you've talked about both nature and ecosystem services and how these systems are providing services to us as humans um, and then i would like to get into also the your concept of the invisible foot which i think is tremendously relevant right now mm. so could you just briefly uh, go through what we mean by ecosystem services yes well this is um you know my partner uh, louise that's her her really that's her major topic um well, one of her topics, but she's also um, very cognizant cognizant of the fact that that um, uh, this this is a much used and misunderstood idea as well, and it can be applied in so many different ways, and it can be implied in very instrumentalist ways, and ways which commodify or you know financialize um, nature in some form. So it, it, it's it's uh, an interesting concept. Um, you know, our relationship, I guess, goes back to our relationship with nature and seeing us, uh, humanity, and, and what we do as in some way different from nature, but in some way, you know, dependent on nature, and in another way, completely entangled with nature. And so... Ecosystem services is a way of trying to value nature in a way which we seem not to have done a very good job at the at in the last fifty hundred years or so, um, and so we we tend to value those things that we can put a financial tag onto or that we can identify in some way as being of service to us, you know, and so. We've, we've, we're trying to develop ways of valuing this, what nature does in, and how it, how it protects us, how it, how it provides us with all these uh, fundamental services without which we cannot survive. And that's a, that's a useful thing if it, if it becomes simply uh, um, uh, related to the the financial value, then we have further problems. You know, so there are cultural values, there are spiritual values, there are other types of value that we can we can appreciate nature for. And so, this this idea of ecosystem services is is attempting to do that. Now, in in our current systems, we we um, you know capitalism is is dominating um, this relationship. That we have, and capitalism is is about freedom to pursue wealth creation, to pursue enterprise developments and, and businesses which contribute materially and financially to to society, and it's done an amazingly um, uh, effective job at that, and created immense wealth. It's not done a very good job at um, distributing that equitably or a very good job of doing it in such a way that uh, nature benefits from the process. Nature has been regarded as, as a source of supplies, resources, materials, and as a an arena in which to dump the, the waste, you know. And it's, so it has not been included in the, this evaluation process very well. Capitalism is based on ideas around the freedom of people to pursue their self-interest, to optimise their self-interest within uh, a system of, of 
relationships uh, referred to as markets, which are regulated by different regimes and states to, to produce certain outcomes. Um, those regulation processes can be very severe and very command control sort of processes, or they can be very relaxed and, and, uh, um, and quite open. The, I think the, the issue at the moment is that the invisible hand of the market of, of this coordination, this magical coordination process of optimising self-interest is something that capitalism has pursued um, and, uh, with great success politically and economically. Um, but we've seen the disastrous impact of that on, on natural systems. And... Um, and we're now reaping what we've sown, you know. We're um, uh, feeling the impact and the effects of, of that unregulated pursuit of egoic needs and wants. And we haven't thought too much about either about um, what, what we mean by self or what we mean by interest. You know, we haven't really thought about does self mean me or does it mean my family or my neighbourhood or my community? Does interest mean my best interest now or next week or next year or 100 years or when I'm dead and gone? Or... And I think capitalism needs to really uh, open up what it means by self and what it means by interest and expand its horizons here. And I still think we need to tap into some of these motivations, you know, the motivation of freedom and of of emancipation that capitalism has has given us in a sense you know economically at least or some of us you know at the often at the expense of others and and so this center, this this issue of who is the self you know in my is it in my self interest to harm my brother in the pursuit of economic gain? I don't think so. And yet capitalism really hasn't answered some of these things, but it, but it's sort of, it's tapped into a fundamental motivation, which I think can possibly open up, us up to an expanded sense of what the self is, you know? So if, if we pursued our self-interest and self meant a, 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 a more global sense of self, and interest meant a more intergenerational sense of interest, then I think capitalism could be, you know, a force for good, as they say. And it could be, instead of the invisible hand of selfish individuals coordinating what happens, you know, where, like I said, we're sowing this, the, the harvest of what we've you know, we're reaping the harvest of what we've sown here. And I think this is where my notion of the invisible foot comes in, is that uh, we can we can have humans trying to coordinate these things as much as you like, but if it's not integrated within a sense of, of contributing to a flourishing biosphere, you know, then nature will give us a kick in the butt to remind us who's actually in charge. That's what the invisible foot is. That's what the coordinating metaphor of the invisible foot is trying to communicate here, is that, um, you know, we can we can have our invisible hands dabbling in, in lots of things, um, but if we don't understand that those hands have to be connected with the ground, you know, that... that we are embodied creatures, and we better understand that we have, that we're embodied and 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 are standing on the earth. And if we disconnect ourselves from what that means, then the the earth is going to, you know, impact on us through the invisible foot. So it's just a little play on those those capitalist metaphors to remind us that uh, you know nature is is where everything comes from and we better get used to that in the marketplace you know we better understand very clearly in the marketplace that nothing is external 
you know, on the planet Earth here, it all comes back to us in some form. And so we better wise up to that. Mm. That's a great expansion of that, that metaphor, I think. And really, as, a, as you said, a grounding of the capital, capitalist thinking and what it truly means for the planet. You mentioned here, uh, like, expanding the self in a way to incorporate longer time spans, to incorporate more of a global sense of self in which a perhaps a capitalistic system could work if the self w was expanded in this way what would you see as some challenges to making this expansion happen to for me to include others in my self-interest to include um, the jungles in the amazon in my self-interest mm. what are some challenges on an individual level or on a societal level yeah this is this is really crucial stuff you know and a great question to to um, you know to dedicate your life to answering. Mm. <laughs> um, well, you know, I I think like now, you know, more than fifty percent of all people on the planet live in cities, right? and so we we're disconnected physically, and it's. That's okay, you know, we, we, um, we can all be connected to our little bit, you know, to our garden and to our, our little herb garden on the balcony, you know. We can be connected to the trees and the street where we live and, and appreciate them. So we, we can have these connections, even if we don't live in the middle of the Amazon or the, you know, the, the Australian bush or something. So, but... But we, there is this physical distancing and emotional distancing, and and a lot of us forget where our food comes from, and a lot of us forget where our soil comes from. A lot of us forget where our clean air and where our fresh water and you know water is not produced you know in a pipe and magically comes out of it our tap you know when we turn it. It's so. We, you know, nature and and humanity um, are, you know, separated in various ways, and we rely on the media to a huge degree to communicate to us the reality of what's happening in nature. You know, whether you know just economically what's happening, but but also in terms of you know climate change or or you know, biodiversity loss or ocean acidification or the eutrophication of water systems. You know, we, we rely on media to communicate that reality and it's failing. The media is failing us. And I think this is what's wonderful about, you know, um, your initiative here with this podcast is that this, you know, you're, you're innately feeling the need to communicate the knowledge and understanding and insights and, you know, views that you're gaining through your experiences in your lives and in your education and your work and so forth, you know, and you're wanting to communicate that because you can sense, I, I feel, the lack of this truth that is being publicly mediated through society and and so we we depend so much on our media to make these connections. So I I think you know that's that's one of the the issues that for me is so critically important in expanding our sense of of globally, you know, our, our sense of global connection with these issues. I don't think there's any problem at all. Any you know, I think we look at this picture of the Earthrise photo and we have a sense of the planet and we have a feeling for it and love for it, you know, and a, and a, a sense of its vulnerability and fragility. And, and so our imagination has no problem at all with the planetary level of what's happening. 
We just need the vision and the information to be communicated. That's all. We just need to see and hear these truths. And our media are failing to communicate this to us. The, the ownership of public media is not diverse enough. You know, there is a, there's been a lot of hope in in the internet and in you know the um, social media to try to communicate these things, and I think it, that it is. I think it's a bit of a, a battleground, you know. Of, of, of it's it's highly fragmented, and and there's very you know obviously many different perspectives being presented, and it's hard to to know which of these sources is is uh, is authentic and valuable and based on reality and truth and science and and so the need for science is now greater than ever the need for an understanding of public education about what science is and how it contributes and what its role is you know when we're confused about something that's so critically important and you don't know how to deal with it. You don't know what to do with it. So you get faced with a personal situation of health, for example. You get a diagnosis that you've got a, a bad health problem. Where do you go? You know, you go to the science. You go to the medical science. And if you don't, you might go to some other avenues and, and find some some truths there and that's okay but if if uh, if we need to to actually manage our way out of these these things we need to have some basis on the scientific fact of what's happening that science can be the stimulus for other avenues of insight and of truth and so forth you know values and and wisdom and spiritual insight and so forth, you know. But science plays a key role at the heart of that. And um, and so our, our media is not communicating that science very well and it's being captured in various ways. And uh, uh, this is a big problem. And it's stopping us from expanding our sense of who we are, you know, how we are connected. You know, COVID is a classic example of this. You know, COVID is a symptom of humanity's degradation of the biosphere. And yet that simple connection is not being made in the media. You know, and there are people deliberately not making that connection who should be leading us to say this uh, this catastrophe, which it is, you know, it's an economic and a social catastrophe, is caused by an unsustainable uh, relationship with nature. You know? So media is, and, and its relationship with science and fact, you know, is such a crucial issue. There's lots of others, but there's just one for you. Mm. I really like that. <laughs> uh, we talked earlier about, we touched on the cap capitalism and our economic system. And I read an article in the Harvard Business Review that we humans, we are what we measure. Uh, that humans calibrate our behaviors towards what values we are being measured against. And in today's world, we see uh, a huge fo focus on, as you said earlier, measuring profits. Companies are seen as successful if they do a lot of profits. And countries' success are being measured towards the gross domestic product, the GDP. Uh, this is, has been uh, on my mind a lot lately and since we discussed this in class. And mm, yeah. I believe that if we're going to overcome this challenge of reaching a sustainable state. We really need to change uh, how we measure success. Like we need to change what we measure. And I'm just curious, and I know that you have a lot to say about this topic. What are your 
thoughts on this? Uh, what is the reason behind this profit-centered mindset? Yes, yes, this is um, a wonderful area for uh, discussion, and, and hopefully it will have dramatic change. I think uh, GDP is probably just as a, as a single sort of economic phenomenon it's probably more responsible than anything else for the unsustainable nature of what we're currently doing. It's leading us off a cliff, actually, you know. I mean, if I could get rid of anything, do one single thing, it would be to get rid of GDP and replace it with some more holistic measure of, of human development, progress, whatever. You know, I, I, you might recall that I showed this slide. We are, we are what we measure. Yeah, as you, as you said, this article talks about. So, if if we are what we measure, why don't we measure what we want to be? Why don't we measure what we want to be? You know, humanity is. Is and, and I have a performative view towards change and transformation. This performative view, you know, means that you have a vision, you take a, a little step into the darkness, into the future, towards that vision. You, you, know, you don't know whether you're going to be successful or not. And you take a step and others see you take the step and you get some feedback from others. And, those others might include natural systems or social systems or friends or family or customers. You take this little step towards your vision and you get some feedback, you know, and the behavior, the act uh, produces some outcome and you either, it's either good or a bad outcome or whatever and, and you take another step and you, you do this again and other people see you and you gather around and you see them taking little steps and this process negotiating this process towards your vision and towards shared vision is based on this performative act and that that through the mediated realities that come back to you from other people changes who you are. It changes, it might change your vision even. It might change what you're aiming for. And so you get this, this movement and feedback process and of changing identity, changing vision, changing behavior, changing purpose. And that transformational process that grows out of that, it needs to be alive and it needs to be reflected in communities and it needs to be in touch with what's real and in the natural systems that form that basis. But that process of performative engagement towards what we want to be, you know, has to include being able to measure where you go with those little steps and there's a working towards this vision. And at the moment, GDP is measuring something which is not my vision. And if, if people understood what it was measuring, it probably wouldn't be anything to do with anyone's vision. If we build more prisons, GDP goes up. If we have more bushfires destroying communities in Australia, GDP goes up. If we have more disease in the community, GDP goes up over time because it creates more transactions, more financial transactions. You know, this is not my vision of where where we should be heading, just simply based on more and more financial transactions. You know, we need to to integrate other sorts of purpose into our organisations. We need to integrate social and educational and, you know, lots of different purposes to do with connecting with nature and connecting and, and, and reviving and restoring flourishing natural systems. 
which I actually believe is one of the biggest business opportunities of this century, is to restore and and revive and and, um, and make more resilient the biosphere of this planet. This is this needs to be rebuilt, and it's um, an urgent task, and it's something which business needs to be involved in in various ways. So, yeah, you know, Robert F. Kennedy made a speech on this in the late 60s, condemning, well, GNP as it was at that time, but measure, condemning these big indexes that do not measure the things that are actually important to us. So imagine if, you know, if global, if, if poverty in Africa increased and part of the GDP, you know, the the progress index of Sweden was based on whether poverty in Africa went up or down. You know, so so GDP goes down in Sweden because there's more pro- poverty in Africa. I think that would raise the urgency of you know our social interconnection a bit more. You know, what if every country in the world included assessing it, how much it had contributed to flourishing ecological systems, to type, to diverse ecologies, but also social diversity, social well-being, and not just economic transactions, you know. Wouldn't that be a better vision? Wouldn't that be something worth taking little steps towards? Huh? That's a wide topic for a large discussion, like what... What is the new measure that we should strive for? That's where we could go. But uh, we will have to wrap this up quite soon. And perhaps there'll be another episode in the future where we dive deeper. But just before wrapping up, is there anything you would like to encourage everyday people to inform themselves about or take action against uh, within the coming decade? Well... I think the most important thing is that we expand our sense of who we are and how we're connected with each other and with, you know, this beautiful planet we live on and to find sources of information and news which reflect those connections truthfully and accurately. You know, all bubbles are not the same. Some bubbles, you know, we live in bubbles, but some of those bubbles are full of unscientific and and unhelpful viewpoints and and made-up stuff, you know, alternative facts. And other bubbles are actually struggling and trying to communicate reality and truth and science and and human perspectives truthfully honestly so i think i'm 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 with habermas there that we need communicative action which is based on honest truthful sincere communication you know and to try i think people need to find sources which do communicate in such a way so that would be my little uh, yeah thank you for that and of wisdom there yeah that's great and uh, if people would like to like get in touch with you and start discussions where do you recommend they go where can they find you i'll just um you know i'm old school email is the best for me so yeah. just my email at the Jon Shipping University. Mm. We'll have that included somewhere. And uh, again, Mark, thank you so much for being here today. I have a sense that there might be a follow-up to this one in the future. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. I've enjoyed it, Melka. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you. Yeah, thank you. As, as Melker said, it's... Uh... Real law before our next episode. It feels like we can sit here and uh, go on and on and talk for hours about these topics. But uh, unfortunately, we have a time limit. But I hope that we can dig even deeper in further 
episodes in the future. It's been a, it's been a real, real pleasure discussing this with you. Enjoyed it very much, and, and congratulations on on this initiative. You know, it's it's fantastic, and uh, I look forward to to listening to to your interviews. Yeah. So, Thanks, well done. Thanks a lot. Cheers. All right, Mark. Have a great rest of your day.